So today we're continuing with our Kingdom of God series. This is, uh, we're continuing with chapter four. I didn't have enough room on this outline to put all the chapter titles, but plenty of the title, uh, plenty of the outlines have the 15 chapter titles on the back. In chapter one, we looked at the primacy of the kingdom that we demonstrated from scripture that the kingdom of God and the king of the kingdom, Jesus Christ, is the most central theme of all scripture. And it's a thread that can bind our understanding of scripture together. Probably the one of the greatest tragedies of modern Christianity is most Christians uh, have the things of God completely disjointed in their uh in their lives as if uh, some like a tornado went through the house their house and just scattered the clothes and the shoes and and the dishes and everything all over and and, and their spiritual mind is a little bit like that and uh, you you really want to be able to think holistically you want to think systematically you want to see the big pictures and uh, the big picture is God himself if you ever find God's plan God's plan is as big as God and so as simple as that. The kingdom of God is what is a present reality. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It was established in Jesus Christ and in the outpouring of, of the Holy Spirit on his life, in his resurrection, in Pentecost, in the establishment of the church, and it is an ongoing increasing phenomena in the earth until the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. So, uh, chapter 2, we looked at 12 statements that define the kingdom. Chapter 3, we looked at major biblical themes for about 12 weeks. And now chapter 4, I'll probably stop at 12 weeks, even though I won't really be able to do much with this topic in as little as 12 weeks. But what I'm trying to do with uh, this chapter and on through chapter 5, uh, well, this chapter may go more like 30-some weeks because uh, I do want to get into types and I want to get into helping you understand case law and, and that sort of thing. But, um, but basically, if you can get a hold of what case law is, if you can get a hold of the idea of a historically accurate narrative, if you can get a hold of God's eternal decree and, and, and you can get a hold of word pictures, uh, you'll get more out of your Bible and you'll enjoy reading it. And you'll get past, um, you always hear uh, young Christians who have been kind of only exposed to modern American cultures and modern American way of thinking. They'll say, oh, I just got bogged down in Leviticus and I couldn't get through it. <laughs> and I just don't know how to read, you know, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And it's because um, no one has helped them know how to read the Bible in a biblical way. No one's uh, taught them how the, the apostles would have read Leviticus. And that's what you really need to do. You, you need to understand how the apostles would have read Leviticus and did read Leviticus. All right, so in chapter 4, we're looking at kind of these word pictures. We looked at Christ, and we're um, focusing on as many as I can uh, from Genesis 1, 2, 3. I want to say that I'm pretty sure almost— I, I don't know of any word pictures that aren't covered in Genesis and Exodus and then grow from there. And most of them kind of come back to a convergence in Revelation. Like Revelation 19, 20, 21, and 22 has like all the word pictures of the Bible flow back in together. And all of that happened uh, in, the, in the first event of Christ and in the destruction of Jerusalem, and that sort of thing. So 
um, the kingdom came in his coming. So uh, we looked at weddings and marriage and and how that's a metaphor of God and his covenant relationship with his people, his bride. And, and that's not just a New Testament thing. And that's not just a, a faddish thing that certain groups in modern times have made popular. That is a major biblical uh, metaphor, major biblical word picture. Um, one of my favorite outworkings of it is Hosea, where God tells Hosea to marry a prostitute. And although she keeps being unfaithful and unfaithful and unfaithful, he keeps wooing her back and forgiving her and restoring her and wooing her back and forgiving her and restoring her. And uh, that's a great word picture of God and his people, uh, especially in the Old Testament times. Now, the intention of God is that the New Testament, you have every, every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus all grace has been given to you. There's no more grace that could be, could be emptied from heaven. So although you have a sin nature and God leaves it so, so that you would have to humble yourself and seek him, there is no temptation that overtakes you but what is common to man. And God every time will provide the way of escape. There is no reason that sin should, that you as a Christian should go on letting sin reign in your mortal body and obeying its lust. You never need to do that as a Christian. And as a covenant father, there are sanctions and covenants. Your father will discipline you progressively more uh, intensely for that. You don't need to be riddled with worries. You don't need to be riddled with fears. You don't need to be uh, disobedient. You don't need to be going your own way about lust of the flesh or the boastful pride of life or anything because all resources are in Jesus Christ. There won't be any more resources after the second coming than there is now. And so if you daily walk in Galatians 2.20, it is no, I have been crucified with Christ it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I live in, the, in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. Your life can manifest the fruits of the Holy Spirit, the character of Christ, all the time. Which is awesome. So, all right, today... I just want to look at mountains, and I'm actually going to look at mountains for two weeks because there's so much about mountains in the Bible. Next week, I'm not even sure if I'm going to do just mountains in the New Testament, or I may just do mountains in the book of Matthew next week. It may take a whole sermon, 40 minutes, to uh, cover what I can about mountains in the book of Matthew. Um, if you want to cheat ahead, use a, use a search engine like Bible Gateway or whatever, and put in mount, because sometimes mountains are called mounts. Sometimes they're called hills, by the way. And uh, But put in mount, and then limit your search to Matthew, and read uh, in context every reference to mountains in Matthew, and you'll realize that the whole world was changed on mountains in the book of Matthew. Amazing things happen in the mountains of Matthew, such as the Sermon on the Mount, the new law coming down from Mount Sinai that came down from Jesus, the new Moses, uh, who Israel must listen to or God would destroy them, as Moses said. And he did, because they didn't listen to him. So 
Next, you know, if you want to cheat ahead, so to speak, uh, this, you know, this is a class you're allowed. It's op open book uh, kind of class. So if you want to uh, cheat ahead, just solve for Mount and look at Mounts in Matthew. So let's get into this. Um, the mountains are where the heavenly sanctuary and the earthly sanctuary meet. Uh, the top of mountains, mountains have a threefold structure in the Bible, and the top is, it represents the cloud, the fire, the manifest presence of God. Like in Mount Sinai, as we'll look at today, um, the people, God had to sanctify the people, and because it was the old covenant and not the new, and because uh, the blood of bulls and goats were never sufficient for, for atoning for sin, but a foreshadowing and so forth, um, they hadn't even started that sacrificial system, but uh, they were about to. And because of all that, uh, the people were only allowed to go to the foot of the mountain. But the first time Moses went up the mountain, he was allowed to take Aaron, the, uh, the priest, halfway up the mountain. And the second time he was allowed to take Joshua halfway up the mountain. But Moses himself was the only one allowed to go up to the full mountain. So mountains in the Bible... Uh, start in the Garden of Eden, and a basic thing you need to know about the kingdom of God and, and this whole series is that God has God dwelt in a temple, a sanctuary, on a mountain from all eternity, the eternally begotten Son of God, Jesus Christ, in eternal harmony with his Father, and in eternal harmony with the eternal Holy Spirit, without beginning and without end, uh, lived in perfect covenant relationship, three persons and one being, and they shared this glorious presence uh, called heaven. And it's symbolized in the Bible by clouds and by fire and by smoke and uh, all kinds of things. But it's uh, like we'll see in Revelation, there is no need for the sun or for day because the Lord himself, the Lamb of God is the light and it will be day all the time. Thought you had long days in northern Alaska if you ever visited. I know you didn't live in the north part, but um, there will be days. They it will always be light, and it's always been light. He is, and he was, and he is to come, and ever shall be, and all that. So, God's intention uh, in creating the angelic beings, and in creating the heavens and the earth, and in creating man on the earth was to bring that perfect sanctuary to the earth and to fill the earth with it. Through his priest, man, mankind, who were to be born of one race and were to uh, manifest his glory and obey his laws and, and be uh, made in his image and therefore show forth his character and his glory until they exported the glory of God through the four rivers that were, in, in, the reason we know Eden was on a mountain uh, because of Ezekiel 28 and many other verses that say, eat in the mountain of God. But we know from Genesis 1, because the rivers have to start, they flow downhill. <laughs> right? So if there's four rivers that are going out of Eden to the end of the earth, it has to be elevated. Right? So the Garden of Eden is on a mountain. Now, there's a lot of reasons why most people think it wasn't the highest point on the mountain of God and, and so forth, but we won't go into that right now. Uh, it's above my, above my pay grade. No, so um, Eden was on a mountain, and it was to become 
the the sanctuary of God, the garden of God. It was to grow into the city of God, and it was the mountain of God. And all these things mean the same thing in the Bible. And they all uh, say mean other specific things as you go, but they're they're all interwoven themes. Now, um, therefore, some things you need to know is altars in the Bible are a type of mountain because a mountain is where God and men meet and is where God makes covenant with man. It's where God judges man. That's why the gates of the temple were at the uh, the bottom of the mountain because uh, God had, and that's why sacrifices were done at the foot of the mountain and so forth, because there has to be a judgment on sin so that we can be cleansed of it to go into the mountain of God. Right? So, um, altars are basically a way of, the, like Jesus said, the altar sanctifies the gold. He was confronting the, the religious nonsense of his day, who said, and he said, what's more important, the gold, as they thought? No, it's the altar that sanctifies. Take out that phrase, the altar sanctifies. When you come to a place where you decide you're going to crucify your will and quit doing your thing and quit doing, disobeying God, then you will meet the presence of God in your life all the time. So altars are a type of mountain. Hills are a type of mountain. Where's my notes? I gotta, got this in here somewhere. Um, pillars in the Bible are a type of mountain. Stones are little mountains. And uh, just like babies are little people. Uh, mountains, uh, trees are like a mountain because a tree goes up into the heavens and so forth. And ladders are made from trees. And Jacob saw them, the angels of God ascending and descending on his ladder. And Jesus is specifically referring to that when he talks to Nathaniel. And he says, an Israelite in whom is no guile. And where did he see him? He saw him underneath the tree in a vision. And Nathaniel goes, how do you know? Nathaniel didn't, didn't have a false humility. He knew Jesus was right. He knew that I'm an Israelite, that God has sanctified my heart and purified my heart. There's no guile in me. How did Jesus know that about me? And he said, before uh, Philip called you, I saw you under the fig tree, which is representative, of course, of Israel. And the fig trees are representative of Israel and so forth. And then he said, you shall see the angels of God ascending and descending because Jesus is Jacob's ladder on the Son of Man. And the Son of Man died on a mountain, on a tree. But I get ahead of myself. So, you know, I hope, hopefully you'll, you'll see, see all this kind of stuff as you start to read the Bible. Um, the presence of God is considered strong on a mountain and in, in uh, all of the earth, in all of time, uh, and even to this day, people want to control the heights. If you read things about the Middle East, the Golan Heights and this and that, uh, you know, Hezbollah and different people want to fire down, and, and the Israelites want to fire down, and everybody wants to fire down. In the famous battles of the, the first famous battle of the American War for Independence was, of course, Lexington and Concord. But early on, there was the Battle of Bunker Hill, wrongly named because it was actually on Breed's Hill. But it, they were trying to hold the hill. 
Because people, you know, uh, you always want to be on top of a hill and because that's for strong defense. So mountains represent the fortress of God. That's why many churches throughout the Middle Ages, which were symbolic of the fortress of God and the sanctuary of God and screening out the world and holding off the world of darkness and, and projecting the light outside of them and so forth, were made of stone on purpose. Because stones are mountains, and we are living stones in the temple of God. You are a mini mountain in, among all the mountains of God. The mountains are representative of God's people. Uh, many mountains are representative of God's people, uh, especially Mount Zion, uh, which holds the city of Jerusalem, which is on a mountain. It's actually on a series of mountains. Mount Horeb and Mount Moriah and Mount and uh, Mount the Mount the Mount Olivet and so forth and we'll we'll get into that next week as we get into the Matthew thing. So hopefully we got this and so let's go through some mountains in the Bible. First, of course, we've already mentioned the Garden of Eden. Out of it flowed four rivers, and the four rivers are also symbolic of the four winds and the four uh, corners of the earth, and they were supposed to export the kingdom of God to the world. One of the major themes of the Bible is that God's covenants bring us into relationship with him, and he is the Susan Tree Lord. He is the one having mercy on us. He is granting us relationship despite ourselves, and he is the one who causes the covenant to work. And if we disobey, there are sanctions for obeying and there are sanctions for disobeying, that is blessings and curses, and so forth. And one of the primary curses is if we fail in the responsibility to export the kingdom to the four corners of the earth, which by and large in church history, the church has done better or worse at different times. But for uh, we are now 2,000 years almost, uh, about in about 15 to 18 years will be 2,000 years after Pentecost, after the resurrection of Christ and Pentecost and the founding of the church. And there are still languages in the earth that have no Bible. And there are still people groups who haven't had the gospel proclaimed to them. And we have a big issue on our hands to recover biblical Christianity in the first place. That's a huge issue that will face the church in the next few generations. So, uh, but we have a responsibility to become all that we're supposed to be and export it. That's what discipleship is supposed to do. What, what happens, I, I go to all these Christian meetings that I'm always invited to that I don't really want to go to, but don't quote me on that. Uh, don't put it on the table. No, I'm just kidding. You can tell me. And it's, uh, it's all these people of various levels of insight and various levels of character, often very low, who have got a strategy to run out and save Dayton and save this and save that and everything like this. But uh, they're, they're not they don't see uh, so many of the issues that they would need to clear, save clearly because every seed brings forth its own kind. Your kids will become like you. Your spiritual kids will become like you. And how far you go in love of God and obedience to God and so forth is the most important issue, even more than how much you go reach out. 
because whatever you are, you'll that's what the people you reach out, reach out to will become. The Pharisees, uh, Jesus said that they go all over the Roman Empire to make one proselyte, and then they turn him into twice as much a son of hell as you are. What you'll find is that often your disciples will pass you in terms of either godliness or ungodliness. Often your children will pass you in terms of godliness or ungodliness. And the only way you can uh, actually love your children, when you sin, you're not loving your children. When you sin, you're not loving your brothers and sisters in in the body of Christ. When you sin, you're not loving God. It's as simple as that. And you're adding to the power of corporate evil in the world. And it especially affects who's ever really involved with you, from your covenant brothers and sisters in the church to your natural family to uh, any areas of influence the Lord has you in, such as your job or whatever. It affects everyone around you negatively. And if you press into God and grow in the grace of God and love Jesus and become more like him, it affects everyone around you positively. And that's why one of the miracles of God is uh, you'll often, when you really go far with the Lord and press into him and know his word, know his ways and stay filled with his spirit and so forth, God will sometimes cause the most unlikely people to come to Christ you've ever met. You'll be... And, and uh, you'll think, this person's not going to get saved. This person's really... And sometimes it's the people who are most antagonistic to the things of God. I remember my parents became Christians, and my brothers and I, we called them the parents. And we were like, the parents have become Jesus freak. What in the hell is wrong with them? That's how we used to talk. And I hated their Jesus freak friends. And then they'd further make my life miserable because they'd come up to you in the grocery store and go, oh, I'm praying for you. And I said, please don't. I'm cursing you. No, I didn't. <laughs> you know, no, I did not. I didn't go that far. But uh, <laughs> just leave me alone, would you? <laughs> and uh, so uh, the Garden of Eden was the purpose was to be a sanctuary temple that was to fill the earth. Mankind is the apex of God's creation, and mankind meets with God in the garden and on the mountain. Now, another mountain, I'm I'm not going to get every mountain as we go through, but since the mountain theme clearly is strong in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, the mountain theme is is strong in Noah. The waters rose until they covered the mountains. And when the flood was over, The ark, which was a type of the church, a foreshadowing of Christ and his church, both. It's a foreshadowing of Christ, and it's a foreshadowing of the ark. The Bible talks about we, those who are born again, are we who have run uh, for refuge from the wrath of God into Christ, into the arms of Christ. And we are fleeing from the great flood of God's wrath and judgment that will come on the earth by hiding in the ark and by being in the ark that is christ that is christ church and uh that ark got set down on a mountain called ararat and guess what 
Mount Ararat is precisely where the Garden of Eden was. It becomes the second Garden of Eden, the second foreshadowing of the true Garden of Eden, which is Christ in his church coming down from, the, from heaven as the new Jerusalem in the new covenant as expressed in the past in Revelation 19, 20, 21, and 22. So Mount Ararat was uh, at Eden. It was a new Eden. Um, Genesis 8, 4, in the seventh month, on the 17th day, uh, on the mountains of Ararat, the ark rested on the mountains of Ararat. So uh, third mountain that we want to talk about. I'm skipping a lot of mountains, but Abraham surveys the land of God from the mountain. It's a mountain that's just east of Bethel, just west of Ai, and it's called Mount Nebo has nothing to do with Nemo or Disney movies. Mount Nebo. Uh, And um, God took Abraham out on Mount Nebo as a foreshadowing of Christ, and and he said, survey the land. I'm giving my covenant people all the land as far as your eye can see. And he repeated that promise to Joshua as they went across the Jordan, into the mountains of Israel, uh, God said, every place that you set the sole of your feet, I have given to you. The New Testament says, God, Romans 16, 20, God will soon crush Satan under your feet in every place that I have set you, I've given to you. We are to extend the crown rights of Jesus, basically saying Jesus is Lord not, please, 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 would you please accept Jesus so he'll feel more accepted, maybe, and so I'll feel better because I somebody finally believes what I believe. No, we, we announce the kingdom. Jesus is risen. He is the Lord. The, he is right. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and you will, you will bow the knee, and you can either do it now or later, like the Fram Oil Filter commercial. You pay now or you pay later. And the price later is always much higher. So God is offering you reconciliation to him, a refuge from his wrath. He's he's offering to take you up to the mountain of God. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, which you can only have by actively leaning on Christ and living in his grace. The hill of the Lord is a mountain. So Abraham surveys the whole land in Genesis 12, 8. And it's the reverse, what God said to Abraham and then Moses. Moses, later, I'm getting ahead of myself, but he died on the same mountain. God took Moses up into the mountain of Abraham, that is Mount Nebo, and he said, look at the land. He didn't allow him to cross over into the land because he had misrepresented God at the, uh, rock, at the waters of Meribah, in the rock of Meribah. And uh, because he hadn't treated God as holy before the Israelites, and because of the great grace and anointing on him, God basically continued, he was restored, he continued to work, but there was a price to pay. That's what people don't get about sin in this, God will forgive anything, and everybody is just like massively like sinning full time as if there's no tomorrow, and you've got to get in at least 6,000 sins a day or something, and there's some kind of quota system in our culture, and the, the culture is going crazy because there's this idea about forgiveness that is some cheap thing. God had to die for your forgiveness. 
And when you sin, you're trampling underfoot the brother. You're spitting in his face, and you're saying, I don't really care that he died to set me free. I disregard that. That's why Hebrews says, how much severe punishment will those deserve who have trampled underfoot the blood of Christ? Peter says that those who lack these seven qualities that he lists as character qualities are blind and short-sighted, having forgotten their former purification from their sins. We think it's just no big deal to get drunk or to get screwed or to steal or cheat on our taxes. I had a guy approach me this week, came to the house, and he said, basically said, I need some work, and I, and I, yeah, 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 sure, and uh, get these guys all the time, and then they hear I'm a pastor and they get more of them. And he said, well, but I need to be paid cash because, um, Stephen was there when he came, uh, he, I need to be paid cash because um, I'm an epileptic and so I get all this government aid and so forth. And basically I need to, con- I need to continue to scam the government. So if I make money, I can't steal from the government and that is steal from you taxpayers. <laughs> like, don't you know you're stealing from me? <laughs> And then you want me to hire you on that basis and and support your scam. Disability has become the major scam of modern times. Supposedly, during the Bill Clinton years, they fixed welfare, right? So they changed it to disability. And now any person can, you know, we met a guy who was a drug addict, and he got mad at us because he wanted food for his daughters, but we got some chicken and some vegetables and different things, and he wanted donuts and chips and pop. And he was mad at us for bringing him healthy food. And so who are you to tell me how I should eat? And he had a daughter that was eight years old, and uh, she weighed way more than me, about 300 already. And she was going to die young. And, and, he, and he, none of it, and, and he went to the doctor, and he got the doctor to say, I have a short shoulder. So he lived on disability. And he, and he got out of working that way. And he took his welfare check every every week. And uh, as soon as he got it every month, he would spend it on drugs and he'd be gone in two or three days. And then his kids starved the rest of the month and he was out looking for handouts. Okay. So my point is everybody in our culture has gotten, it's really a lot of it's at the footstool of the church who said that salvation is about praying a sinner's prayer and Jesus will forgive you. And that's all there is to it. And you can just do whatever the hell you want. That's just not correct. And we all can see this in other people, but we can't see it in ourselves. But there is consequences for David. There were consequences for uh, Moses. One particular sin, and he wasn't allowed to enter the land. He got to see it from the mountain, the same mountain that Abraham viewed it from. But he didn't get to cross over into it. That's pretty intense stuff if you think about it. Uh, Let's keep going. Uh, Guess where Abraham was called to sacrifice Isaac? On Mount Moriah. More exactly, the mountains of Moriah. And Moriah was an area that had mountains on the mountains of Moriah. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him as a burnt offering on the mountains of which I will 
tell you, Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide himself the lamb, or himself a lamb. That is, he himself would be the lamb. I'll read it in the complete Jewish Bible, or the, or the um, uh, what's it called, the uh, Orthodox Jewish Bible, and it'll be a little bit more clear to you. Um, God will provide himself the lamb. So the two of them walked on together. Abraham called the place the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, in the mountain of the Lord, the Lord will provide. That's where he'll provide for you. If you could get biblical in your thinking, you know, this idea that you're supposed to have devotion nets. And if you could just read one psalm for three minutes a day, that would be better than nothing and so forth. You know, the reason what you need is you need to ascend the mountain of God. You need to have a spiritual, charismatic, word-oriented, powerful experience in the presence of God that changes you from glory to glory. From glory to glory, we're being changed. You need to encounter God every day until by the Spirit of God you live there and you're always in the Spirit as Jesus was our model of that. That's the normal Christian life. That's not what we expect in America, but you've got to renounce and shake off as if it's some demonic kind of flypaper that's sticking to you. Complacency it means self-satisfied, and you've got to ask God to set you free from not pressing into the totality of God because it's killing you. Hope you understand that there's an old saying that soft preaching makes hard hearts and hard preaching makes soft hearts. So I'm beating you up a little bit today because I love you and because I want you I want you not to dwell. I don't want you to eat at McDonald's and eat tallow fries and other eat out of people's garbage cans, which is similar to McDonald's and, and that kind of thing, you know. I want you to eat the best of the land. I want you to eat of the garden of the Lord, of the Lord himself. I want you to have lamb for dinner. (laughs) I want you to have the fruits of the Holy Spirit every day. I want you to have the living bread that came down out of heaven and is not white flour and white sugar, (laughs) but it's the, the Lord Jesus himself. God forbid that it should be processed by man. That's the problem. We have a process by man, Jesus, today. I want you to get set free from the process by man, Jesus. I want you to meet the Jesus that's described in the first three chapters of Revelation because it's a revelation. It wasn't supposed to be some mystery that people would write all kind of crazy things about. It's, supposed to, it's really clear to anyone who sees that it's, that it was written to the early church out of Old Testament metaphors. Every line of it is a word picture, and every line of it describes Jesus and his kingdom now purposes. Uh, So anyway, Abraham and Moses were the reverse of Jesus' temptation. Jesus was taken up on a mountain, and he said, throw yourself down, right? And I'll give you the earth. And what God said is, look over this land, and I'll give you that. 
but it was by God gave it by grace and and they didn't have to sacrifice any intimacy or covenant or obedience to God for it as Jesus refused to do and that's why the Lord he's going to inherit the nations read Psalm 2 uh, Moses encounters God in a burning bush and uh, by the way uh, Mount Moriah that Abraham we talked about is, is also where the temple was built later Moses encounters God in a burning bush on a tree called Mount Horeb, and that Mount Horeb is none other than Mount Sinai. And God came down in fire on Mount Sinai, first with Moses, and then after purifying Moses, he sent him to the children of Israel to deliver Israel as a type and foreshadowing of Christ, and then he met with the children of 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 Israel on Mount Sinai once again in the fire and the cloud of smoke and the thunder and the earthquakes and so forth because he's a holy one. Now, my note that says man before movement is just to say this. All through the Bible, look at Joseph in the book of Genesis. Look at David. Look at Mo- Moses. There's Look at Christ. Look at Christ's preparation of the apostles. The first thing God does is painstakingly prepare a person. And that is so much more important than you're running out and saving the world. Have more in you. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, uh, said, if I had known God was going to give me 25 years when I started in the ministry, to, I would have spent the first 20 preparing in preparation. You know, that's the curse of the church today is all these shallow efforts. And nobody goes far enough in all three tools of grace, the word, the spirit, and the church. And and studying and studying and studying thoroughly and learning to be a temple for the Holy Spirit all the time. And learning how to walk successfully in the light with your wife, with your husband, with your covenant brothers and sisters, with no secret agendas, being able to be under authority, not doing your own thing. Learning how to work as a team, being a role player. And because nobody goes further with this, the church has got all this activity, but it's 95% perspiration and only 5% inspiration. We need to reverse that in the next few decades. And believe me, this is the message that God will anoint and God will bless and that the church will, that is the church. Thousands, millions will come to this message eventually. That doesn't scare me in the least that Paul preached to 12 people at Ephesus. Millions will hear, will hear what we're saying about that. Restoring the church to its full biblical parameters and restoring character to the a real deep and knowledgeable and fruitful relationship with God. Re- becoming restored. Let's move on because I'm going to have to quit. God makes covenant with Israel and Mount Sinai, the threefold division of Mount Sinai we touched on already. I want you to understand when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, he gave Moses the two tablets, the testimony tablet, stone written by the finger of God, etc. Uh, the, the t- when God, when it, Moses was on Mount Sinai, 
uh, Israel went through a twofold failure. And I'll end with this point because I'm going to run out. Of, yeah, I'm just going to have to. We're going to just preach about mountains for a few weeks, but then you'll see how to read the Bible. This is all just one topic, mountains today. And this is what you should, this is what should go through your heart and mind when you read about mountains in the Bible, which you'll read about in everywhere. See how many, by next week, see how many mountains you can find in the book of Matthew. Um, Israel failed the first time. Everyone knows that they failed by when Moses delayed in making the, the golden calf. But that was following, a, a, that was the second failure after the first failure that when God made covenant with them in Exodus 19, 1 through 6, and, he, and they, they, they cried out and said, all that you've commanded, we will do. And they started a journey of 1,800 years of self-righteous, performance-based, non-grace-based approach to God that Paul condemns them for in Romans chapter 10. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge, because not knowing about God's righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness, but sought to establish their own. That is the curse of religion. And that would, when, if the Israelites would have cried out to God and got on their face and said, you are a holy God, all that you have commanded we could never do, save us from ourselves. God would have saved them right there. Instead, it took them till, till God took the kingdom away from them, as Jesus t talks about in Matthew 22, in, uh, in, you know, uh, in Matthew 23 and Matthew 24 and 25. It took them till God took the kingdom away from them and gave it to another nation producing the fruit of it called the church because they couldn't see that you could never do it in and of yourself. That was Israel's first and longest failure. Well, last point here on this. This is still part of the coming down from Sinai. When Moses, on Mount Sinai, God gave him the pattern of the tabernacle. And the tabernacle, we'll start with that next week. It was threefold also. And therefore, they took the mountain of God, Mount Sinai. They took the mountain of God with them in the wilderness called the tabernacle. And with the same threefold structure of approaching the, pres the Holy of Holies in the intimate presence of God. Amen.